Fifth, it's also an act of the will and not a feeling. There are some women who say, well, you know, I will, I'll submit myself as soon as I have the right feeling. No, 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 that's not the way it works. If you wait until you feel like it, it'll never happen. Jesus understood that. John 13, 17, when he said to the disciples after he has washed their feet, he said to them, um, now that you know these things, he says, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, Jesus didn't say, okay, now you need to go out and wash one another's feet when you feel like it. No. He said, you do what you know is right and then the blessing comes. Then you'll feel like it. Right? But you've got to do what you know is right first. Same thing's true. We can't get the cart before the horse. You don't wait until you feel like it to be submissive to your husband. No, no, no. You do what you know is right before God, then comes the blessing. It's always that order. We can see that all, with, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. We talked about that earlier, where God comes to Cain and says, um, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, there's always joy in obedience. There's always joy in obedience. But sometimes we want to say, oh, Lord, make me feel like it. Make me feel joyful, and then I'll do it when I feel joyful. No, no, no. God says that's not the way it works. You're getting the cart before the horse. You do what you know is right, and then comes the right feelings. But you've got to act on what you know is right. So it's not, it is an act of the will. It's not a feeling. Furthermore, it's the proof of your love. John 14, 21, Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments, right? So in his, a wife can say, oh, I love my husband. I love my husband. I really love my husband. And usually what she means by that is that I emote a lot of romantic feelings towards him. All right, I loved him. No, that's not love. Jesus says, you can do that with me. You can emote all kinds of positive feelings in my directions. Jesus, I love you. All right, I really love you, but that's not real love. Jesus says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. That's the proof of your love. And it's, this becomes the proof of her love. She can talk, 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 until she's blue in the face about loving her husband. But if she isn't willing to follow that up with action, will follow through and be obedient and go through even with stuff that she's, that's not her first choice. If she's not willing to do that, she could talk all the love she wants, but she doesn't love him. So it's the proof of her love. Now, it's also an all-inclusive command. Wow, all-inclusive? Well, let's go back to Ephesians 5. Let's read on. Well, let's begin in verse 22 and read down through verse 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in, what's the last two words? In everything. Wow. In everything. <gasps> everything? In everything. So it's an all-inclusive command. You say, now wait a minute. What if my husband wants me to lie for him? What if he wants us to cheat on our income taxes? 
What if he wants, us, wants me to, in essence, steal from somebody? Oh, it's not overt, but I'm supposed to be submissive in everything? No. The Bible says it's in everything that is right. Within context, we know he's referring to everything that is right. By the way, that's clarified in 1 Peter 3, 6, where it talks about wives being submissive to their husbands. And verse 6 says, um, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her, the Greek word there is kurios, um, Lord, called him her Lord. You are her daughters, it says, if you do what is right and don't give way to fear. Now, did Sarah always do that which is right? No, she didn't. In fact, on more than one occasion, she did what? She lied for Abraham, right? She lied. That's the reason why that little caveat is there in 1 Peter 3, 6. You are her daughters if you do what is right and not give way to fear. You don't follow everything that Sarah did. But generally, Sarah had the right heart. Sarah's heart was generally, I'm going to obey my husband no matter what. That's what I want to do. And even if I don't like it, that's what I'm going to do. As long as it's not something that's clearly wrong, morally wrong, I'm going to obey my husband. Well, Sarah's worthy of being emulated, but just not in everything. Because then she took it to the degree that she was even to lie and cheat for her husband. And that's not right. And God ended up revealing both lies. So it's an all-inclusive command, but it means in everything that is right, you're supposed to follow him. Oh, let me go back there just for a second. So if your husband comes to you and says to you, you know, sweetheart, we've had a rough year financially. I've had to fudge our taxes a little bit. And since you sign and you file your taxes jointly, you have to sign off on this. Now, nobody's going to be able to catch this. We'll make up for it and send extra tax money in next year, but I'm just going to have to fudge on this and kind of be, you know, work the numbers a little bit in order for us to make it financially through the year. Now she faces a dilemma because she's basically being asked by her husband to sign off on a tax form that's fraudulent. Is that right? No. So how, how should she respond to him? What should she say to him? She need, needs to say this. Sweetheart, you know what? I love you. And I, I know it's been a rough year and I've been praying about that. But I can't lie for us. You think that by lying and telling the government something that's wrong that we can get away with it. And I know you intend to make it up, but I can't do that. You know why? Because you're my husband. You're not my God. I'll do everything else that you want me to do, but I cannot lie or cheat or do something that's fraudulent. I can't do that. This is why a woman like this is not a doormat. She understands what she's doing and she stands up for that which is right. Do you know that I had a, I've had counselees in the past who's done, who've done that. In fact, they've talked with me about the fact, oh, I'm scared to death. If I say to my husband that, he's going to get really angry. I don't know what he's going to do. He may erupt, da-da-da-da-da. 
And I've actually had this happen. Eventually, she got the courage to go back and say, no, sweetheart, I love you, but I can't do this. And, and then he becomes so convicted about what he's doing, he changes. But you know what? She had to make that stand first. She had to do that first. She cannot participate in any lies. She can't do that. Because God is her God. Her husband's not her God. And when he asks her to break God's commands, he's asking to be her God. No. And by the way, if he does realize that she'll do that, that she's willing to lie, cheat, falsify records, et cetera, et cetera, for him, he'll never, ever be able to love her because you really can't love someone who you can't trust. You really can't. All right, number eight. It's a proper relationship to God's authority. It's a proper relationship to God's authority. That is, the way in which we again are submissive to Christ is exactly the way in which we should be submissive to our husbands. Al, do you want me to start again? Could you? Oh, okay. <laughs> There's, you have to tell her the context of that statement. It's actually your pastor that started the whole thing, all right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> It's on tape too, that's right. <laughs> All right, so it's a proper relationship to God's authority. Uh, number nine, it's also a way to stay youthful. How's that? Well, let's go over to 1 Peter 3. I mentioned that a little bit ago. But in 1 Peter 3, um, Peter here talks to wives and says in verse 1, remember the context here is uh, Christians undergoing unjust suffering and now in verse 1 he's talking to Christian wives married to unbelieving men or at least men who are acting like unbelievers. In the same way you wives, in what way? In the way that Christ responded to unjust suffering back in chapter 2. In the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word... Those, that's unbelievers, or it could be people who profess to be Christians who are still disobedient. They may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. You don't win your husband over by putting repent in the bottom of his beer can. That's not the way you do that, all right? As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And then he says in verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding a of the hair, wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. That's precious. In other words, it has to do with the inner person, that gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth, or actually, the word precious is the Greek word rare. It's like a rare jewel. That has been found. This is a rare woman who has this. She doesn't have to demand her rights. She doesn't have to become argumentative. She's the type of a gal who has this deep, strong, inner quality of a hidden person that's gentle and quiet. Why? Because she trusts God. That's why. 
She trusts God in her marriage. And when you have a rebellious husband, the way you win him over is not by lecturing him into righteousness. That's not the way you win him over. That's the way you drive him further away. You don't lecture him. You don't read Bible verses to him. You just drive him further away. How do you do it? He says, without a word. It has to do with living out righteousness, your chaste and respectful behavior, verse 2. You know, it's hard to live an ungodly lifestyle when you're living with Jesus. And she becomes Jesus to him. Now, sometimes I tell wives, if you really start practicing this and really put this in, implement this, your husband will get meaner before he gets better because he'll become really convicted. If you're really living out righteousness in front of him, it'll really bug him at first. Oh, I can't believe this. The worse I am, the better she is. But that's the very thing that wins him over to righteousness. She can't manipulate things. Back two years ago, we had a woman in our graduate program, real wonderful gal. She was counseling a gal uh, up north of um, Santa Clarita where we live. Uh, This gal lived up in the mountain areas. This gal came to her for counseling. She was a believer. Her husband was not a believer. And she had taken their credit cards and charged their credit cards up with excessive spending and buying to their limit. And her husband had no idea about it. I mean, they were tens of thousand dollars in debt because of her. And she realized that this was a horrible testimony. But she was scared to death to tell him that she had done this. Number one, it would ruin her testimony. But number two, she wasn't sure exactly how he was going to respond to it. And uh, so I was coaching her counselor, the woman who was counseling her, and I said, you know, I know that, I know that she thinks that terrible things are going to happen, and, you know, maybe they will. I don't know, but she needs to be honest with her husband. That's the only way that she's ever going to gain any kind of respect back with him. She needs to tell him what's gone on here. What has happened? Well, she debated, and she went back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, she decided to do it. Jody kept working with her and kept working with her, and she decided to do it. And she decided to confess it to her husband. To her surprise, her husband didn't react hardly at all to it. In fact, he said to her, Oh, I've known this for a long time. And I've just been waiting to see if you were going to tell me. As a result of that, her husband started coming to church. Her husband came to Christ. All of her kids started coming to church. And even one of her two of her teenagers came to Christ as a result of that too. I don't know about her younger kids. But you know what? She had to face that ethical issue in her life. Was she going to be honest or not? And then when she was finally honest, God blessed that. But she also had to face the issue that no matter how my husband reacts, I've still realized that God says I have to be open and truthful with him and lay all the cards on the table. I have to do it. And so she was prepared for any kind of reaction. Now, I'm not saying that every time a person is honest, that's going to happen. I'm not saying that. 
I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But we're oftentimes surprised about how people react when we're finally really honest with them. And this is the way that this type of a wife needs to be. She needs to be very honest and godly in front of her husband. And it's not her lectures. It's not her words. It's not reading scripture to her husband that's going to win him over. It's the behavior of her life. It's her integrity. It's her godliness that's going to win him over to righteousness. When they see, verse 2 says, their chaste and respectful behavior. Now, externally, as she grows older, she's going to lose her external beauty. That's just going to happen. There's nothing she can do about it. She can soak in gallons of oil of Olay for hours and hours, and she's still going to lose it. This is going to get wrinkled, and you're going to have crow's feet, and you're going to get a little baggy underneath it, you know, and and you're not going to walk quite as straight. Externally, again, you're not going to be on the front page of Seventeen Magazine, But you know what? In the eyes of a husband, believe it or not, it's a woman who has internal character and godliness that over the long run is beautiful. Remember how I shared about uh, Delbert and Evelyn Lakes? That was Evelyn. Evelyn was not a beautiful woman by any stretch of the imagination. But you know what? Everybody was attracted to that girl. Because she understood godliness, internal godliness. It's a way to stay beautiful in the eyes of your husband, even though all the externals go away. That's why we say it's a way to stay youthful. Ten, it's also a picture of how Christ, how the church of Jesus Christ to obey him. Soldiers in rank, pillars in place, the church obeying God. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the order that's supposed to be brought about in this world of chaos. And it's up to a wife to help with that particular order. So it is a picture of how the church of Jesus Christ is to obey him. Now, what is all of this based upon? How can we say this about the whole issue of submission? Well, grab your Bible for a moment. Let's go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're interested in verses 13 and 14. 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. What is this based upon? Well, notice in verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Now, within context here, Paul is talking to young Timothy as a pastor, talking about what the church should be like in its worship service. And part of this description here is how women should act and respond during the worship service up in verse 11, it talks about a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. That should go on. Now, why? Well, verse 13 explains why. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So we would say this, that 
All of this is based upon, first and foremost, the order of creation. The Apostle Paul sees theological significance and priority to the order of creation. In other words, this whole idea of submission did not come about just as a result of the fall. Even if there had been no fall into sin, Eve would have still had the responsibility to submit herself unto her husband. Still had the same responsibility. Why? Because the order of creation. God created Adam first, and then he created Eve. And the Apostle Paul says that there is theological significance in that order of creation. But then the fall came, which brings us to verse 14. Verse 14 says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So it's also emphasized through the fall. In other words, it was based upon Eve's fall into sin. Now, why is that so important? Well, most businessmen understand this, businessmen and women too. Do you ever get those phone calls around supper time at your household, people trying to sell you windows and storm doors and, and whatever, whatnot, all right? Right around supper time because they know all the family's gonna be at home and that's the reason why they call at that particular time and they think that what they're selling you is the best thing on the earth and that's gonna, this is going to be the, you know, and I could, I tell, when they call, I tell people, listen, I don't care if you're giving away BMWs, I'm not interested. Thank you. And when I hang up, my wife's there going, oh, right? If they're rude enough to call right during supper time when they know the whole family is gathered together, then I'm rude enough to hang up on them too, okay? I'm not interested in that, that stuff. But you know statistics. All the business statistics show this. Now, they've tried their best to wipe this out, but they don't. They know on those phone calling things that if they can talk to the woman of the house they are more likely to make a sell. They're much more likely. They don't want to talk to the guy. Now, I realize there are exceptions in this, but general statistics are still true. They know statistically. Car salesmen know the same thing. They know the same thing. I took my daughter to go buy a car, and even though the car salesman knew that I was the one that was funding the car, he almost totally ignored me and talked to her the entire time. You know why? Because he believed that if he could sell her on the car, that dad would go along automatically. He picked the wrong people to deal with on that. That's not going to happen. Nope. My daughter's looking at the, the, the fabric in the seats and the color of the car, and I'm looking at whether it's going to get her from point A to point B. All right? <clears throat> um, so, statistics show that. In other words, Eve has a general problem. What is that problem? Eve has a problem giving in to people what Eve did in sin. That's the natural propensity after that. There's a problem there. Now, feminists hate acknowledging this, but I think it's very, very true. This is the reason why Paul says what he does in verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. She has a problem giving in to people. 
That's the reason why we say not only is this based upon the order of creation, the whole idea of submission, but it's also based upon Eve's fall into sin. She needs to follow her husband's leadership. And then you look at verse 15, it says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The word preserved is the word sozo in the Greek. It's actually, you can literally translate it saved. It doesn't mean that she's saved eternally because that word can also use to talk about temporal salvation, not eternal salvation. Uh, In other words, um, and I think that's what's going on here, but women will be um, saved, that is, saved from heartache, saved from hardship, saved from strife through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity. It doesn't mean that if a woman bears a child, she's going to heaven. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean eternal salvation. Any more than later on, um, in chapter 4 and verse 16, when he talks to Timothy, he uses the same term where he says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation. There's our word sozo, both for yourself and for those who hear you. He's not saying that if you teach all the right things, you'll go to heaven. He's not saying that. He says, he says you'll, you'll ensure That is, saving your people from heartache, hardship, if you pay close attention to doctrine. It's the same thing. So, the implication here is that a wife um, is preserved if she, that is, saved from heartache, hardship, trouble, difficulty, if she focuses upon rearing her family, her godly children, as her role in life rather than trying to take over some man's role in her life. Thirdly, it's also a lesson that, one, that God once taught because as a wife is submissive to her husband, in the similar way, the church is supposed to be submissive to Jesus Christ and that becomes a beautiful picture of what should be happening um, in the church. So what is all of this based upon? Godly submission is based upon, first, the order of creation, secondly, the fall into sin, and thirdly, the fact that God has a lesson that he once taught here. Um, Again, soldiers in rank, pillar in place, the church obeying God is the idea. Now, so the first word that ladies need to, we're only through the first one already. The first word is submission, right? Second word is suitable helper. Genesis 2.18. Therefore, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Remember how we talked about this earlier. This is, I will make a Azer Canigno for him. Okay? Azer Canigno. This is someone who is ideally suited for him. She is his perfect complement. It's not his responsibility to become the suitable helper. It's her responsibility. Sometimes when we have these college girls and guys come together into relationships, we talk with the gals. My wife is usually the one who talks with them. She talks about the fact that it's not her fiance's responsibility to come in line with her goals in life. It is her responsibility to come in the line with his goals in life. 
And if she doesn't want to come into line with his goals in life, then she shouldn't marry him. I don't care how cute and adorable he is or the color of his eyes. She shouldn't marry him. That's not good. So the implication is she is to be a perfect complement, a fitting completer to him. Her husband, then, is her primary ministry. Her husband is her primary ministry. It's not the kids. It's the husband. Husband's numero uno. The kids are number two. Kids are number two. And in that order. And so she devotes her time to making sure that what happens in her husband's life is successful. You know, my wife is so good at that. She is so good at that. She really is. When I go on these trips, she's always thinking ahead of what I'll need on these trips. And she'll lay the things out. All right, this is what I want you to wear on Friday. This is what I want you to wear on Saturday. This is what I want you to wear on Sunday. And here's all the vitamins that you'll need. She handed these to me while I'm walking out the door to catch the plane. And there's all my vitamins, and she put them all together for me every day that I'm gone, and she'll check to see if I took them, all right? All right, that's it. She'll make sure that I took my vitamins. And you know what? She does that before she takes care of the kids. That's humbling. That's really humbling. Because she is ministering to me that makes me all the more desirous to minister to her. Um, she becomes a very easy woman to love. She's not high maintenance. I'm probably the high maintenance person in the family. She's not. And she finds her greatest joy in making sure that I have everything I need to make my ministry successful. Whoa. That is just remarkable. Um, so her husband is her primary ministry. She sees it that way. She'll find her greatest joy and contentment in that role. You know one of the reasons why I think a lot of women are very miserable it all boils down to one thing, and that's that nasty little word, selfishness. Because for them, life revolves around them, their desires, and their wants. For them to think about their husband first, and then their kids second, her kids second, is so foreign to her thinking, it's even repulsive for her to think about it. That's a sad thing. And some of you that are older married women in the, in the congregation, you can be a great help to the younger women in this area. You really can. Because they are, the younger women are under constant pressure in our society and culture to think just the opposite. In fact, they're trained from the time that they're little and in school to put their rights and demand their rights first. We have a very selfish, both males and females, generation coming up through our educational system. They're taught that from beginning to end. 
And so when they get into marriage, and a lot of marriage demands a lot of selflessness, and when you take on the role of being a suitable helper as a godly wife, that certainly is part of that role. It's very difficult for them to assume it. So she finds her greatest joy and contentment in that role. Number, fourthly, she finds herself also as a contrib contributing member of a partnership, as a Azer Canigno, a suitable helper. That's not a doormat. That's not a woman who's put her mind in neutral. No, no, it's none of those things. She is a contributing member of a partnership. She sees herself as, and her ability to think, her gifts, her talents, as, as harmonizing with her husband's abilities, gifts, and talents, and in some cases, complementing where he's weak. And in order to, for them to press forward with their common goal together as a couple, she sees that, and she understands that, and she's committed to that. That's her, her life as a suitable helper. So the first word we have is submission. The second one is suitable helper. The third one, grab your Bible, and let's go over to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's go over at verse 33. Let's look at verse 33. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're interested in verse 33. It says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The third one is selflessly reverent. You see that word respect there in verse 33? It's really the Greek term phobos. It's where sometimes we translate literally the word fear, but it doesn't mean fear as in terror. It means reverence. That's the idea. It means that her responsibility is to develop a reverential attitude towards her husband. What does that mean? It means to honor him, prefer him, venerate him, esteem him, praise him, love him, admire him exceedingly. That's what it means. She is to hold him in highest esteem within her heart and mind. Now, ladies, that has to be cultivated. That is not something that comes automatically. She is to reverence her husband. And you have to cultivate that kind of reverence. Now, some women will say, you know, if I really do this, oh, my goodness, you know what's going to happen? It's just going to feed his male ego. I mean, you know how big his ego is already? I'm just going to contribute to it, that's like adding fuel to a smoldering fire. It's just going to explode. Can I suggest to you that if you have a Christian husband, the opposite occurs? Because the more you do this, the more you honor him, prefer him, venerate him, esteem him, praise him, love him, admire him exceedingly, the more he realizes in the depths of his heart how much he doesn't deserve that. 
Did you hear me? The more you do that, the more he realizes how much he doesn't deserve that. And it actually has a reverse effect. It's actually humbling. I can't believe that she says such nice things about me when I know my own heart. He's thinking. I can't believe that she praises me and says so many good things when I realize who I am. It's a humbling effect. It actually works in the reverse. So do that. Now, I'm not talking about artificial things. I'm not talking about highlighting things that aren't true about your husband. I'm not talking about praising him for stuff that he never really does. No, I'm not talking about that. For some of you, it may be, it may take a long time, but find something good in your husband's life. <laughs> and when you find it, then you praise it. You know, it may be a rare thing, but you can find it, I'm sure. I think one of the worst assignments I ever gave a wife was I, I told her to go home and I want you to write down and I want you to bring in the next time of counseling 20 things that you can really admire about your husband. You know, she came back in and she had, the, she had about three or four things there listed on her list. She never made the 20 things. And she said, this is the hardest assignment I've ever had. <laughs> and I said, now, wait a minute. I've only met with you and your husband about two or three times in counseling. And I can say the following things about him. And I started rattling off about quickly about a dozen things about him that I've noticed. And I didn't even hardly know the guy. She's going, how'd you do that? I said, you know what the difference between me and you is? No. You have a mental block in your mind and it's called negativism. All you see is all the wrong things that he does. That's all you see. You have dark colored glasses on. That's all you see. And as long as you view him through those dark colored glasses, it's going to be very hard for you to find anything positive. You need to take those things off and smash them and take a brand new look at your husband. She did. In fact, she repented in tears because this is an attitude that she had carried for several years. The next time she came into counseling, she had 40 things that she could admire about her husband. I never even gave her the assignment. I never gave the assignment. The Bible says you have, you have to work at honoring him, venerating him, esteeming him, admiring him exceedingly. All right. Imagine a group of women standing around talking about her, their husbands. They're saying all kinds of negative, pessimistic things. And you step in the middle of that group at church and you say to them, you know, my husband's not perfect, but you know what I really love about him? I love him because da 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 All those women in that group are going to look at you like you stepped off of a spaceship. <laughs> Sweetheart, what is wrong with you? <laughs> You've been drinking. But you know what? They'll think about that. They'll think about that. They'll go home and they say, now why can't I do that with my husband? Did you, did you hear what she did? I mean, she rattled off a dozen things. Boom, 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 boom. Right in the midst of all that bad stuff we're telling and saying about our husbands. She rattled off all these good things. Ah, I want to be like that. 
I want to be able to do this. This is what Ephesians 5.33 says. This, verse 33 is really a summary statement after, after he's talked all these things to husbands and wives. He says, okay, let's wrap it up. Each individual among you must love his own wife as himself. If there's one thing that the Apostle Paul sums up, that's what it is for the husband. And the one thing that he needs to sum up for the wife, summary thing for her, and wife must see to it. Notice how he says that. She must see to it that she respects or reverences her husband. That's what we're talking about. That's what this means. What it doesn't mean, reverence him, don't try to revamp him. Reverence him, don't try to revamp him. You're not his personal Holy Spirit sent to convict him of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God has already sent the Holy Spirit to do that, and the Holy Spirit will do a much better job than you. In fact, you'll drive him further away from what the Spirit is doing. Focusing on his negatives becomes your excuse not to follow him and obey him. It'll help to rationalize, not follow him. But when you're, when you're really reverencing him and venerating him and esteeming him, when that's really happening, you don't have any excuses and you know it. That's the reason why you don't want to do it. I don't have any excuses. I got to follow what he says. Failure, I want you to understand, will destroy your love for him. Let me tell you, I can tell this. It doesn't take me very long. I don't, I don't have to know a couple and I sit down with them and in about 10 minutes in counseling, I can tell you where a woman is in this, with this whole issue. If you, if you fail to selflessly reverence your husband, tension will grow. It's like dominoes beginning to fall. Tension will grow in your marriage. It's the first domino. Gradually, there'll be a deterioration of your love for him. Next domino. Right on the heels of that will come discouragement, and in some cases, very, very severe discouragement and depression. Next domino. Right on the heels of that, then will, become, will come a general hindering of God's work in your life with your children, with other people. It's just a domino effect. Boom, 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 boom. Right down the line. That's what will happen. If you fail to do that, if you're constantly negative, pessimistic, always viewing all the wrong things that he does, picking at him for this, that, and the other thing, if you're constantly doing that, you're violating God's clear command. And when you violate God's clear command, there are consequences. The way of the transgressor is hard. Or we could say it like this. The way of the transgressing wife is hard. It's hard. It's a hard life. And it's a life that you choose to live. Wow. Rather than being that way, you should esteem him. Admire him. A failure to actively pursue a high degree of respect for your husband will result in growing tension in your marriage, increased anger, discouragement, depression, and a general hindering of God's work in your home. 
all of that will be the case. So there's three things a godly wife has to focus upon. Are you ready, ladies? Review it real quickly. Three things. We're going to impress the guys this time. Here we go. Say them right out loud. Number one, in order to be a godly wife, submission, helper. There we go. That's good. One more time, ladies. Uh-huh. Yeah. There we go. That's good. Boy, pastor, they're quick learners. There we go. All right, gentlemen, you haven't forgotten yours yet, have you? Ready, guys? Here we go. Learner. Yeah, very good. All right. We have four more things to memorize. Four more things to memorize, and we'll be done for the day. We're going to talk about communication. So on this one, fasten your seat belts and put your crash helmets on. All right? Let's take a break.